you've entered a club. It's a little hazy and underlit. All the tables are populated by dark, huddled shapes wrapped at the stage. There's a single bare, sharp spotlight shining upon someone up there. They've got a mic and a stool, and it feels like we've all been waiting for you. We don't want you to miss the best parts. You recognize some faces here as you pull up a chair and order a drink. Get ready for the story of Vega, the adventure of a lifetime, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. Figarex's job is a little unusual. She's a government assassin hired to pick off the worst criminals, and she's the best at what she does. Granted, then one target slips through her net and escapes. What does that mean for her? For her career and her status, and her own determination to eliminate these people on behalf of a powerful techno-theocracy. This extreme, futuristic fantasy world would not be as riveting or as terrifying without the superb storyteller, Ivoma Okoro. We may have set up a stage and a microphone and an audience here, but this is truly the conversational, relaxed, joking, and casual story of a friend entertaining you. The energy here is electric and incomplete without the music and sound design, both subtle but essential to that polished feel that gives it just that edge of a spotlighted performance. So, the performer on stage, she sails into the mic and says a quick one, two, testing the back of the house. Sip your drink. It's time for The One with Drake Muckrow. <clears throat> Let's pretend that you and I are on the phone. For some reason, neither of us can seem to remember who called who. I'm pretty sure that you called me, but you keep insisting that I called you. I guess it doesn't really matter. All that matters now... Is that we're connected. You tell me you're bored, you're in traffic, you're on the subway, it's 4.30 at work on a Monday and you just finished all your work for the week. You've got 30 minutes to kill and you're gonna lose your freaking mind if you don't find something to do with it. That's why we're talking. You want me to tell you a story. You love a good story, you tell me, but come on. I knew that. Because who on planet Earth doesn't love a good story? Well, it just so happens that I've got a story that I've been dying to tell you. And I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, we're not on a call. This is clearly a podcast. And if I'm about to hear a story that's going to span multiple episodes on a podcast, then it must be one of those hardcore, journalistic, this unbelievable series of dark events really happened in murder mystery, Alabama kind of story. And you would be wrong. This will not be that. Trust me, this is not the next serial. 
Actually, once upon a time when this story was a script, it was supposed to be the next Pirates of the Caribbean. And then when it was a book, it was supposed to be the next, I don't know, Hunger Games. But you know what? As a podcast, it will be the first of a new thing. It will be one epic, sci-fiical, fantastical adventure story told by yours truly from my mouth to your ears week by week. And I promise you, I promise you, even if I only get two subscribers, I will not stop telling the story until I finish what I came here to do. So really, it's up to you. Are you up for the adventure? Do you want to hear this majestical story from humble beginning to harrowing end? You're still listening, so I'm going to take that as a yes, or at least a solid, eh, we'll see where this goes. And I'll take it. So get comfortable, my friend. Break out the Capri Sun. Secure your Haribo gummy bears, because here we go. Ivoma Okoro is my name. Telling stories is my game. I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, but I live in LA now. Welcome to the very first episode of my storytelling podcast, Vega, a sci-fi adventure. Vega is the name of the podcast because Vega is the name of the main character. A sci-fi adventure is also in the title because that is the genre of story that this one falls into. Parentheses, it also has a lot of fantasy elements, so don't be surprised by that. Full disclosure, we'll be using our imaginations. Which shouldn't be scary at all because even if you are a fully grown adult human being, you use your imagination all the time, trust me. Though I'm pretty sure that past a certain age, its main uses involve conjuring up worst case scenarios. For the next, uh, I don't know, year, while I'm telling you this story, we're gonna put that thing to better use. We're gonna be using that imagination to go on Vegas journey and it's going to be awesome. I think you'll really like it and I know I'll enjoy getting to share every last detail with you. It's a story I've been working on for the last two years, basically, all alone in my room and I'm excited to finally be putting this thing out into the world. So. Without further ado, I'm gonna give you what you came here for. I'm gonna tell you Vega's story, but to really get her story started, there's someone else I kinda have to tell you about. Someone who is currently having the best day of his life. And consequently, it will also be his last. Dr. Drake Muckrow. That's the name of the someone else I want to tell you about. The guy who's having the best day of his life. And this is despite the fact that he had killed 400 people before breakfast this morning. I'm not really sure how distasteful he found this act, the killings, but I'm 100% on how he felt about his actual breakfast. Loved it. Five stars. Would recommend. It was this walnut raisin cereal recipe a smart fridge had just recently put together, a recipe especially calibrated by his fridge to suit his ever-changing taste. I think 
If he would have asked Mukro about those killings, he would have said it wasn't his fault. He had always made his instructions to clients very clear. If they paid the monthly maintenance fee on their shiny new synthetic organs, in turn, he would make sure that said organs wouldn't, for whatever reason, spontaneously and irreversibly destroy themselves. And really, was that asking too much? If he had gone through the trouble of sequencing their DNA against the hundreds of other data points that they gave him, engineering the very organs that would save their lives, the least they could do was pay him the proper thank you for the upkeep. Side note, the organs were completely self-sustaining. This guy had over 700,000 clients off the black market and none of them knew this. And if they found out, what could they do about it anyway? He just presses a button and they die. That's how he did it. That's how he killed 400 people at one time. But let me tell you the reason why he did it. Because he raised the fees last month. And without fail, every time he raised the fees, his clients got a little too snippy about the payments. So when he woke up this morning, he did the usual. He did his stretches. He prayed to his God for a little bit. And he input the number 400 into his system. Bleep, bleep, bloop. The system selected 400 random clients. And boom. Mass hysteria this morning as hundreds of people all over the country drop dead in their homes, seemingly at the same time. The leading culprit? Organ failure. Mass implosion before cereal. Mukro checked his bank account as soon as the story broke, and with jubilation, he saw that the monthly maintenance fees from nearly 700,000 clients had come rolling in. I'll spare you the numbers, just believe me when I say it was a lot of money. And no sooner had he checked his bank account when a message came in on his link. It was for a job interview, one that he'd been waiting for for a really long time. And they were even letting him pick the location. So where else would he go but VIP at his favorite dance club, Inebrios? The interview must have gone really well because now we're outside the club with Muckrow and his interviewers, these two well-dressed ladies, and they're all standing around having their final chats. I said they were well-dressed, but I want to make sure you understand just how well-dressed they were. The champagne pink camisole of one of the women, right now fluttering in tonight's lovely breeze, had real ruby red crystals sewn into the lace at the front, and every so often, one of them caught some light and glinted off her body like a homing beacon. The other was wearing a geometric paneled skirt, and each panel had been hammered from the same platinum alloy they were using to make luxury sky pods these days. And Mukro had also dressed for the occasion. Despite it being kind of warm out, he was wearing a full suit. It was a sporty gray number made of crisp technical fabric. It had a shade, the silhouette that fit the contours of his reedy six foot frame to the millimeter with a hidden zipper to bring the lapels together and chrome buckles that folded off the hems of his trousers and disappeared into dark loafers. Anybody walking by could tell that these three were disgustingly rich, but just in case the way they were dressed didn't give them away, each one of them was wearing a sleek U-shaped pin somewhere on them. And everybody knew that only the richest people in Knox could afford a subscription to the wardrobe services of the Money God. But also, that's what sets Muckrow apart from his two interviewers. The Money God symbol is the only symbol he has on him. Like everyone else who'd come to the club tonight, these two ladies had dressed for the hot weather, and on nearly every stretch of skin that was showing, hundreds of tattoos are standing out to the eye. And that's because, like most everyone else in Knox, these ladies had started out their lives very poor. And in a country like theirs, the more 
poor you were, the more gods you tended to accumulate over your short and terrible life. These ladies had obviously risen a very long way from the rags part of their rags to riches story. And the fact that Mokro had not one god mark on him besides the one was very impressive to them. Anyway, they're all standing outside having a conversation that can basically be summarized like this. The rich ladies are like, dude, you're rich. You are so freaking rich. You were in the running to replace the money god himself. We follow him now, but we can't wait to follow you. And Mukro's like, I am so cool. So he reaches down to his data link, which is this tempered glass he wears at his wrist, basically their version of a smartphone, and he hails a Skypod. And they're talking about rich people things, vacations and mansions and incompetent servants. I don't know what rich people talk about. And out of nowhere, the Skypod drops out of the sky. And drops is the right word. Like all empty sky pods on the descent, the machine takes full advantage of free fall and then two feet before it crashes into the ground, it simply stops. Mukro and the ladies seem completely unfazed by the two-ton flying machine that just fell from the sky. And Mukro says something like, next time you see me, you'll be my minions, bye. And the ladies get into their own pod and fly away and Mukro crosses over to his and he's dancing, he's laughing to himself, he's just so happy. And the security guy, who really can't be more than 12 years old, is standing near the open hatch with Mukro's overcoat and Mukro's like, stay in school, son. And the kid's like, I... I don't go to school. But Mukro's not even listening because the very moment he slides into a sky pod, a young woman he doesn't know slides into the passenger seat beside him and a tinted hatch window swings shut over them. Man and woman stare at each other. Their bodies are mere feet apart. The OS of Marco Skypod boots up with three slow and deep chimes. Curious. Mukro had never found those chimes seductive before, but also he'd never been this close to a woman like her as he'd heard them either. She, uh, I mean, she was foreign born. She had to be. Her skin was darker than the skin of his people. It appeared unblemished across her wide round face. She had dark eyes with a heavy line of lashes around them. Her black hair was thick and pulled back. You know what she reminded him of? She reminded him of pictures he's seen in his history classes, like the images of native peoples on the units on colonialism. Yeah, he'd always been kind of into that. The native attractions were so, so stately, so regal. There was something enticing about those dark, bald-headed warriors who coated the bones of their enemies in gold and wore them round their necks like jewelry. It was clear whoever she was, this woman possessed much of that noble blood and four millennia of selective breeding had only seemed to refine it. Huh. Yeah, she even had that uh, classic Fatraxin look, you know what I mean? How their eyelids just droop and give them that, oh, I'm so bored, life is so boring kind of look. Mukro finally stops thinking all these thoughts and he leans back in his seat and he's like, well, this night just keeps getting better and better. To what? But he does not finish that sentence because with a sudden jerking breath that belies her lethargic expression, the woman's hand flies from her side and comes down on Mukro's arm with the needle of a single point syringe. It stabs him. He gasps. He jerks back. His fingers scrabble for the syringe, but the little instrument of death is only further activated by his movement. A ring of smaller needles shoot out of it and bite into his skin like sharp teeth. The plunger collapses, and a colorless shot of neurotoxin pumps straight into Mukro's forearm. There isn't even time for him to scream. 
the dark shadow of toxin races with impossible speed on the web of nerves that are standing out on his skin, zipping up his neck, flashing down to his fingertips. In the next moment, his body seizes, he breathes his last, and he slumps against his seat with his eyes open. Dead. In the seat over, his killer slumps back in her own seat, closes her eyes, and sighs. Three guesses who it is. Who else? It's Vega Rex, baby. Woo! Oh man, that sigh, that hurricane-like release of all the air from Vega's body, yeah, that was a sigh of relief. Only relief doesn't begin to cover all that she's feeling right now. Mukro had been seconds from getting away. And don't get me wrong, Vega would have found him again, easily. But it would have been the first time in a very long time that she would have failed to complete an announced attempt to kill. The last time that she had announced to the mission deck that she was about to kill her mark and then didn't kill that mark within the same hour was... Goodness, I don't even think she remembers. I mean... It had to be in the early days, for sure. Fun fact for you, at this very moment in time, Vega is the premier record holder for consecutive completed ATKs throughout the whole league, for all time. One of her many records, actually. And she doesn't even want to think about how close she just came to losing that record just now. If she thinks about it, she'll get angry, and she has to keep her cool, at least until she's safely back on her sky bus. So, forget that to the matter at hand. Vega rubs her neck. Updated field note, she says into her data link. Drake Muckrow, B-I-D-8-I-L-698, status changed, deceased. She holds up her link and snaps a photo of Muckrow's body. Time of death, 0134 hours, local time. She's wearing a dress. It's this sheer gossamer draping thing that's trending right now among the young noxious socialites. Standard girls' night out attire. And she reaches under it to a utility vest that's hidden underneath. From this vest, she pulls out a small silver cartridge in a pair of bright blue CSI crime scene looking latex gloves. And here's what she does with these gloves. She inspects them. She holds them up to the light. She slowly, deliberately puts them on, one finger at a time, stretching the latex over each appendage, inspecting, testing, scanning for holes. She pulls them down taut as far as they can go, making sure that they cover her wrists, her link. She's thinking. She's looking over at Makro's body. She takes out another pair of gloves and she puts them on over the first, hastily now because she's wasting time. Kill method, she says, 30 cc's from a kill shot to the right forearm. She presses a button on the syringe and the tiny needles retract with a whir. Retrieved, clean extraction. She opens the silver cartridge and she places the kill shot syringe into the place it belongs. Also inside this cartridge are two rows of compact vials filled with the colorless neurotoxin, the same stuff that just killed Mukro. The vials are glittering like crystals in the light of the Skypod's home screen, and Vega notices something else now. Her hands are shaking. She flinches at two hard knocks on the Skypod's dome window. It's the security boy. What's going on in there, man? Or something like that. I don't know what this kid sounds like. But lucky for this kid, he can't see the death glare Vega's giving him through the window's tint. But he can hear her because she says this strong enough for him to hear. Trust me, run. And he does. Huh. 
wow, he goes tripping back to the club. It really shouldn't have been that easy, but okay. One possible witness, Vegas says for the link. And this, my friends, is when the Skypod's operating system decides to insert itself into the situation and just make this a party. Saving audio and video link to archives, and the Skypod announces this in exactly the kind of husky, pseudo-sexual, feminine voice a dude like Makoto would program a Skypod to talk to him in. And Vega's like, frick, because she forgot about the OS, the all-seeing eyes and ears of every Skypod in the world since the dawn of time. Okay, I know what you're thinking. I think I know what you're thinking. You may be thinking, shouldn't Vega be better at this? Earlier, you said she was an all-time record holder, but this seems like a rookie mistake. And you're right, it is. Only Vega isn't the rookie it belongs to. It was the apprentice. Vega knew the moment she'd been assigned that stupid apprentice, a night like this was bound to happen. Stay on the sky bus. Just stay on the sky bus. You tell me what's so hard about that? That's plain language, right? Well, maybe the meaning of those words completely changed sometime after Vegas started tonight's kill attempt because that is exactly what The Apprentice did not do, which forced Vega to have to abandon tonight's original kill plan, risking witnesses, the exposure of her identity, and major contamination to preserve her record. Mucker would have been dead hours ago if not for that, that child Vega was being forced to babysit and she would have been halfway back to Petraxis by now. At this point, Vega's like Stanley from The Office anytime Michael Scott tries to get him to do literally anything over it. And yes, I know that this TV show does not exist in Vega's world, but you know what I mean. So Vega shoves the kill shot back into her vest and she says to her link, direct message for locksmith, get me a remote hard drive wipe on the vehicle now. But the OS is all, it doesn't even matter, biatch. Local troopers are already on their way and you're gonna pay for what you did to Drakey. Oh, oh yes, and remember that security boy who ran away? Yeah, he's coming back now. And now he's got his arms wrapped around this ridiculously huge compression rifle that looks like it's got a kickback so strong it would shatter this kid's clavicle. And eight more boys with guns are running up behind him. So yeah, any hope Vega had of making a discreet escape has now faded, shriveled up, and blown away into the starry night sky. According to recent reports, the local trooper division is very trigger happy, and you have no idea how much they loved Drakey, more than their own gods. He was their reverence, he was their adoration, he was the greatest doctor, man, friend, lover. Vega swipes the volume down on that real quick, and then she just sits there in the dark and in the silence as big black trooper skypods drop into the club's turnabout. She holds up her hand and with a smooth movement of her wrist, a couple inches of hollow glass slide out of the strap of her data link and into her palm. Call Galex, she says. The screen turns black. The line picks up and then Vega, what's up? Ah! Heads up, you're on speaker. I kind of have my hands full, but tell me your day is going better than mine. How's your adrenaline? Are you hyped up yet? Have you forgotten to take a drink in the last 20 minutes? Let me take a quick moment to announce an exciting upcoming event. The Tandon Productions Creative Corner, hosted by Radio Drama Revival. 
If you've listened to episodes from last year, you may have heard our interview with Marissa Tandon from the Austin Film Festival about Super Ordinary. Her company, Tandon Productions, is releasing a limited series podcast, Life on Pause, written and produced during quarantine, together with writers Gabriel Urbina, Beth Crane, Mia Kodama, and Alex Wisenhunt. Radio Drama Revival will be hosting a series of interviews throughout December and January on Instagram Live with these writers and a few of the actors, starting tomorrow, December 10th at 3 p.m. Pacific Time with Gabriel Urbina, and on December 13th at 3 p.m. Pacific Time with Scotty Shoemaker. You can join the live on either at Radio Drama Revival or at Life on Pause Pod on Instagram. The performer has not left the stage. It's time for the one inside Inebrios. A very smart woman named Marilyn Vosavant once said, Being defeated is often a temporary condition. Giving up is what makes it permanent. My name is Ivoma Okoro, and you are listening to the second episode of my storytelling podcast, Vega, a sci-fi adventure. On last week's episode, we started our time together following around a very rich, very bad doctor man right up until the moment he met a mysterious woman in a dress who stabbed him with a syringe filled with poison, which was only a bit of a party foul. The woman, it was Vega Rex. And when we left her, hanging out in a sky pod with a dead body, surrounded by a lot of people with badges and guns, she was making a call to a man named Galex, who picked up the line like this. Vega, what's up? Ah! Heads up, you're on speaker, I kinda have my hands full, but tell me your day is going better than mine. On this week's episode, I guess Galex finds out he's not the only one. Let's get into it. If you remember, the call Vega was making wasn't just your standard voice-to-voice connection. It was a video call. She can see Galex on her screen in her palm and Galex can see her. Two things to note about this. Number one, this dude Galex looks exactly like Vega. They've got the same oval-shaped face, the same russet brown complexion. Even the way their curls spring out and hang around their faces is the same, though hers are for the moment pulled back and his are trimmed short and shot through with gray. Galex is basically the old man version of Vega. It's more accurate to say she looks like him, and they both love it when people point this out, by the way. Second thing to note about this video call, Galex is clearly distracted. There's another screen being projected just off to the middle distance beside him, and from this display are coming all the sounds you're hearing now. A crowd cheering, high impact strikes, some sort of monster growling, the sounds of a professional fight, essentially. Without missing a beat, Vega starts in. You know what I hate? Galex spares her a glance. What's that, sweetie? I hate when things don't work the way they're supposed to. I'm in Knox right now, and literally nothing here functions properly. You would not believe the night I've just had, what I've had to put up with in just the last three hours alone. My skies, three, ooh, three hours? Why would anyone make a child a security guard? You don't even get to pay them less anymore. That's been outlawed for nearly a century here. It makes no sense. That's the opposite of secure. That's a risk. That's a huge liability. Mm, right. It's all right. And you tell me, what kind of OS functions better with flirting mechanisms built into it? 
What would you want? Your system getting its circus in a twist, trying to figure out if your tone means you two just got in a fight? Or for your system to focus on keeping your giant flying death machine in the air? And I said, didn't I say, apprentices are a bad idea, didn't I say that? Absolutely, you said that so many times. So many times, but does anybody listen to me? No, they just wanna keep on assigning these apprentices one after another until one of these little know-nothings loses me my record and then everyone's gonna be all, ooh, whoops. We really f***ed that up. But you know what? Won't be my problem. Not one bit. Finally, Vega lets out this big sigh and her dad smiles, this knowing smile. Better, he asks? Much. Good old Galex. You can always be trusted to at least pretend to listen whenever Vega needed to blow off a little steam. And we'll pretend she doesn't need to blow off a little steam at least once every other day. Finally, Vega's like, Dad, what is that? What are you watching? And he gets this childlike look on his face, clearly glad she asked. Check it out. He moves the screen so she can see, and for a second, Vega isn't sure what she's looking at, because on the screen is a video of her father, dressed in nothing but a loincloth, circling the bottom of a stone stadium, and, uh, wait a minute. Is that a... Yup. That's a bear. I'm fighting a bear. They do these tournaments in the Little Republic. Isn't that neat? And she's like, that? That's horrifying and random and dangerous. Is this a recording or a simulation? You better say simulation. And he's like, of course, simulation. I wouldn't dare. And he taps into the sim, taking the place of his autopilot avatar and the little loincloth Gaelic starts to mimic real life Gaelic shadow boxing movements. And he's like, plus, now I know, I get my beach handed to me. And she's like, oh, oh, sorry. No, father, you are not young enough to pull up the term beach cheeks. And he's like, Psh, neither are you, you're 30. And she's like, first of all, I'm 28, thank you very much. And I can pull off beach cheeks, don't you worry about that. And he's like, mm, if you say so. And she's like, mm, I do, I say so, yeah. And finally, he's like, um, honey, what are you watching? That is so loud. And she's like, hmm? Oh, I'm not, I'm not watching anything. And he's like, what's all that commotion and she's like reality and now he's giving her his full attention but the only problem with this attention is that it's the kind that usually very angry parents reserve for their very troublesome children and he goes are you on a mission right now and she's like blink blink and he's like blink blink Incoming call from Precinct 248, Trooper Squad B10. Declined, Vega says. Accepting call, initializing. Hey there, girlfriend. Uh, now don't be alarmed, my name is Sabian and I'm here with the troopers and who do I have the pleasure of speaking with tonight? And this is when Galex goes off. Vega, are you out of your mind? What is wrong with you? Why are you calling me when you're on a mission? Are you getting arrested right now? And Sabian's like, oh, uh, this is a bad time. And Vega's like, oh, I'm not, I mean, the mission was pretty much over. It's not a big deal. You're making this a thing. It doesn't have to be a thing. Everything is fine. Where did I go wrong? Why would you do this to your father? What if you died on the line with me? Vega, this isn't a game. This is your job. This is your sacred duty. I know it's my sacred duty. I take it very seriously. Miss, is there somebody with you? Is that your father in the pot with you? So nobody's dead. Sweet Saivo, I'll call you back. I gotta call you back. Just to clarify, there's two of you in the pod and nobody's been murdered. Am I getting that right? Obviously, you shouldn't call me in the first place. Love you. Bye. Love you. Text me. 
Sabian, is it? Yeah, I'm coming out. There's nobody else in here with me. I'll come out with my hands up. Just give me like a second. Oh, oh, you're coming out. Yes, mm-hmm. Coming out right now. Can you just give me like 30 seconds, please? Hang up, please. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, okay, okay. I see you. Okay. Wow. I am going to pull your hard wiring out myself with my own hands. You're trash. You're trash. Open the door. Opening door. But because I feel like it, not because you told me to, stupid OS. More like peace OS. Ha ah. And Vega climbs out of the hack and steps out into the night. She puts her hands up as the open end of over 50 class action compression barrels fasten their gaze in her chest like unblinking black eyes. The music from the dance club has gone quiet. Even the balmy night is holding its breath. And into this silence, Vega speaks. You see? This is what happens when you program your OS to play footsie while giving you turn by turn. Things get a little dramatic. With a very particular movement of her wrist, the screen of her data link flashes back on in her palm. She lifts it high in the air so everyone can see the image of her badge booting up. Man, too bad you can't see this. It's pretty cool. It has this dope minimalist style, and it's basically a lightning bolt formed into a jagged letter S. Anyway, when all the troopers in their Kevlar vests see it, they're like, oh my god. And Vega's like, Vega X, holy league. I just took out the most wanted criminal in the world, and I was just about to call you. Point out that that scene, the dramatic guns drawn, badge flash, the name's Rex, Vega Rex type showdown, that never happens. That is not the way these kills are usually made. There's an old saying in Knox, actually. Noxians are brown, Patractions are black, and hunters are clear. Because even when a hunter was standing right in front of you, you couldn't see them. They make their kills quietly and then drop a line to the local authorities on where they can find the bodies. You don't see or hear a hunter coming. The local authorities don't even get to know which of their high-profile cases are being worked on by hunters or even how many of them are in the area at any given time. And if you do happen to have the misfortune to see a hunter, I hope you've enjoyed breathing, friend, because you've got like 60 seconds on that. Tops. I say all that to say this. Vega didn't get to be the hero of her own action movie very often, and to be honest with you, she didn't hate it. Big men with guns and tattoos were looking at her like she was Denzel Washington from Training Day, and I realize Denzel Washington does not exist in this fictional world, but you know what I'm talking about. It made her feel powerful. But whatever, she could think about that later because the fact of the matter was that she was compromising her identity every minute she was out here rubbing elbows with troopers and she really, really just needed to be home. So she corners the trooper captain and what do you know, it's Sabian. Sabian's the captain, yay. And they trade words, boring bureaucratic stuff and almost as like an afterthought, Vega's like, oh yeah, and that girl in the cuffs in the women's restroom, that's my apprentice. Just send her out to my sky bus, I'll pull it around. And Sabian's all, oh. Oh, um, okay, so there's a, a, about that. I, you, um, and Vega doesn't even wait. She rushes back into the club, fighting her way through a thick horde of dancers to the restrooms in the back. She shoves aside the caution tape and pushes open to a scene that makes her heart jump in her throat and the blood in her veins run cold. The apprentice is gone. 
The pair of cuffs that had secured her to the bottom of the sink where Vega had left her are lying mangled on the floor. And there's blood everywhere. Smeared on the ground, splattered on the wall, crusted on the white marble of the sinks in the shape of hasty handprints. This is bad. A semi-public killing on foreign soil was one thing, but losing an apprentice. And losing an apprentice like this. Vega reaches a hand to the wall to steady herself. She doesn't even know what the consequences for this would be. Sure, hunters died in the field all the time, but nobody she'd ever been responsible for. Nobody she'd left cuffed to the bottom of a bathroom sink after having to break their arm when they tried to resist. Forget her record. Forget being fired. Was Vega going to go on trial for this? Wow. You're quick. You're like a puma. It's Sabian, the trooper captain, in the ladies' restroom, which is okay because she's a lady. Why is this club still open right now, Vega asks. Isn't this an active crime scene? Oh, come on. This is Knox. If we close a place like this every time something illegal happened, it'd never be open. Uh, okay, did you find a body? No, Sabian says. And she looks a little too giddy about this. My guys are still collecting information on the muckrow thing, and the forensics team is stretched a little thin tonight. But hey, good thing you're here, right? Chasing people is what you guys do best. And Sabian's just staring at Vega, fangirling hard. She shakes her head. Wow, you just seem so calm and collected. And it was true. The moment another person came through that door, Vega took on the emotive energy of a bag of rocks. Inside, she was trembling, but Sabian didn't need to know that. So Vega turns her back on the woman and walks over to the sink. She looks hard at her own reflection in the mirror. Drake Muckrow had been on the international hit list for what, 10 years? 10 years, your country, your best people were looking for this guy, searching dead ends, false names, with nothing more than a trail of bodies to show for it. You wanna know how long I've been on this case? She looks at the other woman in the mirror. Three days. She puts her hands under the automatic faucet and starts to wash them meticulously. And that's because I don't chase people. I don't follow scent trails like a hound dog in the woods. I get in here. She taps her finger at her temple. And here, she taps her chest, where her heart is. Figure out what they want. Figure out what they fear. Figure out what makes them do the things they do and you won't be behind them anymore. Do it well, you'll predict every move they make. She takes the hand towel off the pile and dries each hand as she walks back. Do it perfectly, you'll be me. Sabian nods, eager. Okay. Okay, so we gotta find out who did this. Then, we gotta find out why. And once we do that, we'll find your apprentice? Vega size. Well, no. This case happens to be a little different. Why? Because in this case, there's literally a trail we can just follow. They look down, and sure enough, there's a trail of blood on the ground that leads from the mess under the sink, out the door, and beyond. Oh, okay, then let's just follow it, Sabian says, but Vega stops her. Actually, I, um, I meant just me. Oh, not gonna lie, Sabian looks a little hurt by this. Nothing personal, it's just, you know, nothing blows a cover like a badge and a gun, you know? Oh, no, 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 yeah, 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 I, 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 I get it. You go, you go find the girl. I will stay, I'll stay, and I'll be here if you need me. Oh, well, good. Okay, take care then. And with that, Vega walks back out into the club and follows the trail on a twisty, turny journey through a crazy little place called Inebrios. 
Inebrio's Clubhouse isn't like any place you've ever been to. I mean, unless you've been to one building with 100 rooms, with each one rented out by a different egocentric techno god, trying their hardest to outdo all the other techno gods, but their meager follower counts to shame. Then yeah, maybe you have. So many, too many of Vegas hunts for the world's worst and highest profile super criminals have taken her through this place, but tonight's journey through this strobe-lit maze feels a little different. Maybe it's the whole follow the blood trail to the probably mangled corpse of the 17-year-old they was solely responsible for? That's putting a damper on things. Though corpse is a little presumptuous on Vega's part, right? Whoever bloodied her apprentice, if they went through the trouble of carrying her through these rooms, wouldn't bother if she wasn't still alive, right? Ignoring the fact that a very great number of cults within these walls had a very great number of uses for dead, freshly dead, or very nearly freshly dead bodies, Vega fixes her eyes on the trail and does the only thing she can do to get back to her bosses with some measure of explanation for what happened here tonight. She follows it. And this is where it takes her. It takes her through the room of a volcano god, where free runners are doing parkour off fences and rock ledges because the floor is simulated lava and everyone on the dance floor keeps shouting in unison, the ground, the ground, the ground is on fire. It takes her through a room rented by an ocean god, where people are swimming in floor-to-ceiling tanks full of exotic fish, and the air smells like seaweed and salty kelp, where the bar is offering a drink called Plankton's Brine, and a man, one of the priests of their order, has gotten plastic surgery to make himself look like a hammerhead shark, and the guy next in line for God? Well, he's made himself out to look like a great white. It takes her through the room of a god of fashion design, where the dance floor doubles as a catwalk, and twig-bodied models with wide-set eyes and gaps between their front teeth strut through a crowd of socialites and celebrities who are all busy making petitions on their daddlings to the fashion god about what freedoms they're willing to give up so they can wear a piece from the new collection, and how big an offering they're willing to make to make the piece exclusive, where some of the most beautiful men and women in the world have been sent by the fashion gods their loyalty to sneer at everyone and everything that isn't branded with their preferred icon, where a liquid light hologram of the fashion god erupts out of the projector every few minutes to fire off a series of poses to the frenzied popping of camera flashes. It takes her through a room of a baby god, literally a god who is a baby, with a room filled with adults imitating her, where hired servants set up playpens and playdates for her followers and change their diapers when necessary and periodically disinfect the toys they're putting in their mouths and who aren't afraid to administer the heavy hand of punishment to any man baby or lady baby getting too carried away with their imitation of her terrible twos. And this isn't a joke. These people believe in the uninhibited primal nature of the human child and when they're here, living out this long lost part of their lives, they feel in touch with their truest selves and also this inexplicable but very powerful connection with the higher power. And the drink they serve in the bottles here, which they call mother's milk, is actually pretty good and good for you. It takes her down a pole into a room rented out by a flower god and filled like a forest with giant, genetically engineered flowers, the height and girth of oak trees, where the floor is spongy with potting plant soil and it smells pungent like it do, where Vega hears somebody call her name. Wait, Vega just heard somebody call her name. Actually, let me be more specific. Vega's not so much hearing her name being called, it's more like her name being spoken over and over again. A loud, strange voice coming from the back of the room that seems to have only one thing to say. 
Vega's not gonna like this. Vega's not gonna like this. Vega's not gonna like this. And with the hairs on the back of her neck standing at attention, Vega makes her way through the flower forest to the back of the room. And what she sees, you're just gonna have to hear about next time because that is where this episode ends. Spoiler alert, Vega's not gonna like this. Well, that was fun. This episode of Vega Sci-Fi Venture Podcast included music from the artists Hill, Alter Ego, and Matt Wigton. This isn't an ad, but if you're interested in licensing music for your own projects, there's a service called Soundstripe that I'm getting all this music from. And if you're interested in music, that's something that you can check out if you're on the hunt for it. Usually at the end of any other podcast episode, the host drops the names of everybody on their team, but I can't do that because I have no team. This is all me, but I don't want it to stay that way. I would love a team. So if you yourself are interested in helping this podcast, in any way, please let me know. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ivoma Okoro. That's I-V-U-O-M-A-O-K-O-R-O. I would love to hear from you, collab and whatnot. If you've got questions or comments about the show, feel free to drop me an email at Ivoma at Vegapodcast.com. A quick confession, I was going to drop three episodes to launch this podcast, but I didn't finish by the arbitrary deadline I set for myself. And then I decided, what the heck, I'll just release it anyway. So I put two out there and episode three is coming next week. And after that, I'll be releasing episodes bi-weekly. I hope you tune in for the next one. I think the story really lands by the end of it. We start getting going onto the main plot here. Okay, I think that's it for now. I guess I will catch you next week, yeah? If you liked what you heard, tune back in next week when we sit down with creator Iwoma Okoro to talk about oral storytelling and our responsibilities in creating them. You can support Iwoma's work at her Patreon, patreon.com slash Iwoma Okoro. That's I-V-U-O-M-A-O-K-O-R-O. Radio Drama Revival runs on 10,000 monkeys under the surface of the earth turning cranks and your coins in the vending machine slot. If you'd like to help keep us afloat in featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And now we bring you our moment of will. Hello, audience. I love Vega. I think that it is so much fun. And when I think of criminals in a sort of fantastical, strange world that remains really shockingly astute and political and relevant to modern day issues and tackling a ton of complex and fascinating themes, I think of a video essay that I really love that came out somewhat recently. This video essay by Yara Zaid is called Holes and the Prison Industrial Complex. Yes, we're talking about Holes, the film based on the book for children, and it rules both the movie and the video essay. So this video essay 
unpacks the prison industrial complex and its effect on the characters and how we can see the prison industrial complex as depicted in the camp, quote unquote camp, that the characters are sent to. Uh, if you love holes like I do, this video essay, you can't miss it. If you've never seen holes, boy howdy, I would really recommend seeing holes. It's very genuinely very good. Uh, if you haven't read holes, also good, not gonna lie kind of partial to the movie. Don't at me. Don't don't talk to me on Twitter about this. Don't yell at me. Uh, this is a great video essay. It's by a video essayist who has become one of my favorites this year. And again, like Vega, it talks about how these fun, captivating stories with fascinating characters can also display some of the most pressing and important social issues that we face. So, I highly recommend it. I'm gonna link it in the show notes as always, and I hope you have a good life. Life. I hope you have a good life. I love you. I don't know you. Uh, thanks for... Okay. Bye. <laughs> that means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Cowlitz Indian tribe and the Atafalati tribe. Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are looking for ways to support Native communities, you can donate to the Navajo and Hopi COVID-19 Relief Fund linked in our episode description below or at www.navajohopisolidarity.org. It is organized by Yeha Othnido, a grassroots and indigenous-led nonprofit organization. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the bands Kylo Kass. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editor is Rashika Rao. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhalgh and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape, the goat. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs> <laughs>